bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And Amy is in Victoria this weekend. Ha <laughs> Enjoying the wonderful BC weather, provided it's not raining. Or too humid like it is here. Oh, God. Um, I'm going to BC next weekend to Vancouver and, for a wedding, and I'm, I'm very concerned that it's just going to be absolute garbage and just <laughs> rain the whole time. <laughs> and the wedding is like outdoors on the beach slash in the forest in the forest yeah it's like a an old scout campsite so there's like a lot of tree cover um but i'm worried it's gonna be very cold and awful weather wise i'm still stuck at forest (laughs) listen (laughs) people in bc are not from alberta Uh, that's what makes us better (laughs) but the forest though (laughs) you know what uh, do you need, do I need, do I need to pull up a, a photo for you? Yeah, I think so because, uh, like, like you know me and outdoors, it's like meh. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, images. All I'm thinking of this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, what is the footwear that's going? Well, to... exactly. That's why I'm concerned about the weather. Yeah, because all I could see is sinking heels. Yeah, I'm wearing flats. Wedges. No, I have a sprained ankle. I can't wear wedges. Oh, okay. Wear That's true. I saw your Instagram oh, story. God, brutal. What happened? I was walking downstairs. And then you just... And it's like rolled. I was like going ba-dump, ba-dump down the stairs. Yeah, and yeah. my ankle just rolled and I crunched it. And ah! It was blinding pain. So that was been fun. I've, I've done that. I've sprained my ankle on stairs before. It's not fun. No, not at all. No. Anyway, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I am... I'm tired. I had a full week, um, but I'm happy. Great that I had a full week. So um, good for business. It is good for business. Yeah, I made money this week, so I'm totally happy. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and I was on 1310 News. Yes. And I got to talk about, you know, how awful I thought the Minister of Finance's communications was. Oh, okay. (laughs) And the royal wedding. Yeah. And something about hockey that I just that like I just glazed over. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, this is where I don't contribute. <laughs> I have nothing of value to say. No, nor do I care. <laughs> um, I helped um, Octiva, the Ottawa Coalition and Violence Against Women, film a PSA this week. I saw that um, for the Orders Up campaign that uh, we helped organize the first event for. Yep. So basically, this is a campaign based in Ottawa, but it's definitely applicable to the wider um, hospitality industry. So basically, we're we're trying to address the issues of sexual harassment and sexual violence in the hospitality industry. And uh, there's a big campaign coming out June 1st. Yep. So it should be really interesting to see how that all goes. What's interesting to me now is that ever since that event we did, Mm -hmm. I choose where I eat very carefully. Mm -hmm. So, for example, somebody I was meeting, I had a meeting this week with somebody where we're putting together a project. And, 
she said, well, do you want to, where do you want to go? Atari or El Camino? I said, I'm not going to El Camino. Oh, no, I don't go there either. Yeah. I'm not giving them their money. I'm not supporting them. I'm not going to Riviera. I side-eye every politician that shows up at Riviera, by the way. Sure. <clears throat> Catherine McKenna. Anyway, uh, <laughs> after after those, after I, I don't think that you could say you're for women and then support businesses that obviously have covered up harassment. Yep, I agree. And I definitely play the role of feminist killjoy when people tell me that they are going to El Camino or any of those places. I'm like, oh, well, do you like supporting a sexual harasser? Yeah. Uh, And I will say I'm not going there. And this is why. Yeah. And that's it. And, you know, if people want to go without me, fine. I don't give a shit. I'm just like, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to sit there and eat their food and smile and laugh and buy their drinks and then get on a podcast the next day and be like, oh, I had such a great time last night at El Camino. You know, like that, that's just hypocrisy. I just, I just think anyway, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I digress. Anyway, so let's get into it. This week in feminism, Erica, as you know, it is primary season in the United States and this past week saw several elections across the country. One of the hottest contests was the Democratic gubernatorial primary in Georgia between Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans. And this is a very was very confusing to me when they when I read about this. I was like, they're both named Stacey. Who would have thunk? It's not that common of a name. No, I, I don't just... know a single Stacey. <laughs> you know why? Because we don't hang out with Tiffany's. <laughs> Seriously. Also, like the or babysitter- Also, the Babysitters Club isn't real. So. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Stacey was the coolest one. She was. She was. Word, word, word. As a lover of the Babysitter's Club from back in the day, she was. (laughs) Anyway, um, Georgia has a history of being a red state, but with more young people moving to Georgia and specifically Atlanta, the political landscape in the state is beginning to change. Stacey Abrams is the daughter of a shipyard worker and a librarian from Mississippi whose ancestors were born into slavery and has actually won the nomination to be Georgia's Democratic nominee, becoming the first black American woman to win her party's nomination for chief executive in the nation's history. While politically Abrams and Evans aren't very different, their approach to targeting voters was very emblematic of some of the issues facing the National Democratic Party. Evans's plan, so the white woman, uh, was to target the existing Democratic base and try to bring back the 2016 Obama-Trump voters, which are, would basically be rural white people. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Abrams's plan uh, was to target the existing Democratic base, of course, but to also target those who had never really voted before, you know, women, black people, and young people. And so, Eric, I know after the 2016 election, you you posted a lot on Facebook and on Twitter, and you still continue to do so, about how black women or Democrat Democrats need to give black women the credit that they're due for keeping the democratic party in office. They really should kiss their feet to be honest. <laughs> I, I don't like black women will save the Democrats from themselves. And, and you know, it's also because the message is one that the Democratic Party alludes to but doesn't support with policy. 
and will cave on and sacrifice in a heartbeat. So um, to be honest, the I, I really do think that black women could propose, could be that sort of pivot point between those, those economic issues mm-hmm. and the more progressive type issues. So I think that's just embodied in black women and black female advocacy. And that's why when black women fight for something, everybody benefits. Um, I, I don't know what the Democratic Party is doing, to be honest. I don't know why. I, I don't understand how they could just um, like how they could screw up all of the goodwill that has been been building for the last two years. But they will. Make no mistake. Yeah, like it's it's really weird if you listen to a lot of um, American political podcasts and read a lot of um, news about the Democratic Party. You know, their their message is always to like go and talk to the voters, appeal to the voters, but their pol their policies, as much as they talk about appealing to the voter, they I don't know that they understand who their voters are. No, I think they think they do. Yes. But they don't really understand. They're still talking to black people, brown people, young people in the same way that they talk to rural white people. Yeah. And that doesn't resonate with them. Yeah, that's true. I also think they're very corporate. I think the democratic structure is just too corporate for its own good. And so these, these corporate values that they embody and, of course, the money that they get does like it it subverts the actual like the actual brand the actual values that are supposed to be of the democratic party and they so easily sacrifice them just for a position that they think will win and the position never wins that's the thing yeah the democrats strike me as like your mom and your dad trying to be cool and just failing miserably. <laughs> Howdy kids. You know, they're like dad jokes abound <laughs> and it's just like awkward and uncomfortable and always falls flat. Um, I will say though that like one, the one politician who hasn't really been embraced by the Democrats, but is actually doing a decent job at trying to engage these, these different voting blocks is Cynthia Nixon. who yes. We talked about a few episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And at the recent Democratic convention in New York, um, I think for the state, I'm not 100% sure exactly, um, they were trying to promote Andrew Cuomo as being super progressive and super awesome. And Fuck uh, Andrew Cuomo. It was just like a lot of the same thing. Like, oh, like, let's support Andrew Cuomo and not in call in Cynthia Nixon or try to understand where she's coming from. Right. And so, yeah, it goes back to the, the national party being just very corporate. Yeah. Because they're just so uptight. Yes. And they would rather support. Um, and this is the thing. The Democrats have, they love legacies, mm-hmm. you know, they love, um, they don't understand that centrist policies are just not in vogue. Like people want change from those 
And it's as it's the same thing happening here with the Ontario election, I think. Um, it's just not popular anymore because people have seen the fallout for the last 30 years. They see that their real wage isn't isn't rate rising, but the cost of living is rising quickly, especially if you think of housing. I was just looking at um, a couple of articles that say that even renting is out of reach for minimum wage people. Mm-hmm. And um, the centrists themselves cannot be relied upon to for, for progressive policies or to push progressive policies. They just can't. They they haven't or not at least at least not anymore not anymore yeah helped us kind of get to where we are now but yeah. we're at the point where like there's extreme wealth and extreme poverty there's no more like that middle kind of ground well once manufacturing left and people had um, nothing else to fall back on it's been replaced by service jobs with no benefits hours that could be cut bullying harassment. All of those things come as a result of workers not having power, and especially female workers not having any power. I'm not saying that like unions are the answers, but I really do believe in in a collective approach for workers to gain that kind of power because unions have their own issues with um, with gender bias too. And when I see people like Especially when I, uh, let's put it this way. So the NDP, union-based, mm-hmm. so-called progressive, I see that they have gender and racial issues. When I see Charlie Angus, for example, mm-hmm. on Twitter, he talks a good game, but I find that he has um, holes in these issues and in conceptualizing the intersection of these issues and still speaks for the white male working class. And I think that's what the Democrats have been too focused on, is this white male working class. Mm -hmm. When I'm pretty sure the white proportion of the working class has probably decreased in relation to immigrants, to, to racially diverse, even LGBTQ people who now make up the working class the democrats have not moved from that just like the Mm -hmm. ndp hasn't here yeah and so that kind of brings me to like the next the next thing on this is that um britney packnett who is one of the hosts of pod say the people she was a member of barack obama's 21st century policing task force she's also quite involved with black lives matter yeah she wrote a thing in the cut about uh stacey abrams and basically she she boiled down her win um, in, as a Democratic candidate for governor into three lessons. So the first one is that people of color matter and that Abrams chose to buck popular thinking and insist on a simple principle that everyone, including people of color, must be central to a winning strategy. She also says that black women are leaders for all people. So black women vote more than any other demographic and people will vote for black women if given the opportunity, which bucks um, conventional thinking again, thinking Mm -hmm. that people only want to vote for white people. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the third lesson, she says, is that we need more fully franchised voters. So she's talking here more specifically about 
how in the United States, 5.3 million people are disenfranchised, which means that they have a criminal record of some sort and are unable to vote. Um, but at the same time, while you have this block of people who can't vote, you also have to offset that block with uh, new Americans, young people, and people who haven't voted before because until those people are able to get their rights back to vote, we have to engage other types of people. Mm -hmm. There's a... I mean, this is not like... It's not rocket science. Yes, exactly. And... But it's the conventional wisdom that these parties and people in power, that's what they run on because they know nothing else. They think that everybody else is an aberration and not not the changing status quo. So when we talk about demographics, when we talk about changing economic, relative economic power, etc., that means that the status quo or what is the baseline is changing. What I find is that the Democrats and their corporate selves, I'm I'm really not, you know what, like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, the Clintons, they just leave a bad taste in my mouth because they will say all the right things and they won't back it up with anything. So they never, ever come out and speak for you. They can't because their positions are privileged their positions have that power privilege of corporatism so they're not going to come out and and actually develop policies against that corporatism just like the republicans won't either there is when people say they want change i really do think it comes from exactly that disenfranchisement of the um of not only the working class, but people in general. The civic discourse is is even trying to, is e- they're even trying to change that civic discourse. Or, fuck. <sighs> what I mean to say is, the discourse that we're having in politics right now is not because the power structure allowed it to happen. It's because people found a way to make it happen and they did so through twitter facebook instagram and really crowdsourcing these ideas and pushing them to the forefront and now media is caught in it because media if they don't talk about what other people are talking about become irrelevant and i really do think that you know as much as we talk about the bad of social media that's the good it's changed entire conversations Mm -hmm. And it's held people to account regarding those conversations. Andrew Cuomo would probably have been reelected no problem uh, had we not started talking about sexual harassment, had we not talked about harassment, had we not talked about racial disparities (laughs) all the time. And this may seem like, oh, like I know about this for people, but it seems to me that a lot of people don't get it. A lot of people in power don't get it and they don't want to get it. They've never had to think that way. So why should we trust them with creating policies for a new so a new paradigm in the in both of our countries, in both Canada and the US? It's funny because these are also the same people who are asking us to be innovative. <laughs> 
sorry. <laughs> like they can't they can't think outside the box about like the different types of voting blocks. But you know what? We need more innovative policies. <laughs> sure, Jen. That is so true. Oh my gosh. So how would they recognize what innovation looks like? Exactly. It's a fucking blind leading the blind. I don't- Anyway, that's true. On that note, Erica, I know you're really pumped to talk about this next topic. Yay. So it was announced this week by the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, (laughs) that football players would be required to stand for the national anthem, much like they are in the NBA, and that if they wanted to continue protesting during the anthem, it would have to be off the field and basically outside the view of cameras. To those players who continue to protest on the field, they and their teams for therefore allowing them to protest, would be subject to fines. The announcement comes after a tumultuous year for the NFL where an increasing number of players protested racial injustice during the national anthem before games. As you will recall, this all started in 2016 when then-San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick started taking a knee to raise awareness of police officers killing unarmed black men and boys. Last season, President Trump frequently expressed his dislike of these protests, which put pressure on the league, but it also, but he also confused the intent behind the protests, saying that the players were protesting the flag and the anthem and were acting un-American. This week, following the announcement from the NFL, Trump said that NFL players who protest should be kicked off teams and possibly even out of the country. <laughs> I love this story. I really <laughs> love this story. And I'm not being sarcastic. I truly, truly love this story because... Exactly what we're talking about in the last story. This is how it plays out. The NFL. I love. Okay. So first off, the players who continue to protest on the field and their teams um, would be subject to fines. But basically, they would have to protest outside of the view of cameras. Like that's the only camera that matters. It's so bizarre. Like, have you never heard of a video camera and live stream, dude? Oh, yeah. Like, this is my point, is that the people who used to be in charge, I don't even know if they figured out that they're not in charge anymore. Like, Roger Goodell. (laughs) You know what's going to go more viral? A A video that a player takes of them and their, like, teammates protesting rather than your fucking wide angle shot of the field with everyone else standing there and guess where the news reporters are going to go to the viral clip exactly so there's this is this is trying to close the barn door after the horse has left Mm -hmm. that's what it is and this is another way where people in power have no clue about the actual like implications well it's trying to control the narrative when you don't understand what the narrative is and you don't know the power of the people and you don't understand it. Yeah. You you don't understand the one, the political environment, but two, the technological landscape. Thank you. And that is exactly what, like I come back to all the time with these big organizations. They don't understand that they are not setting the standard anymore. And that people, anybody with a cell phone and a, and a decent, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Count, Facebook count can can subvert that authority and that's the point and that's why I love this story because it is so backward I I'm just like <laughs> I just think 
I think good luck with that. But it, it's also going to show like how much disregard the NFL has for black people. Because so the way that this kind of rolled out was that the NFL said that the coaches voted, but they didn't vote. They took a survey and it didn't go through the union. It didn't go through any of the actual formal channels that a responsible organization would have done. Yeah. It was entirely irresponsible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I like in my opinion, Roger Goodell just lied, basically. I mean, <laughs> I mean, he's lied a lot about a lot of things yeah, regarding this but, whole situation. But I love how he is like chief liar now. I mean, I, I mean, I'll, I'll go with, I'll give him second liar. Okay. I'll go well, well, yeah, Trump, there, is, Trump is, yeah, okay. I, nothing compares <laughs> to that, to be honest. Sure. But, um, Roger Goodell is now in a situation where he is choosing one set of fans to over another. Yeah. So he is happy to placate white fans because the white owners, I think what happened was that the white owners came together and say, we can't allow this to happen. And since they said, and since, you know, the NFL pretty much runs like a plantation, Roger Goodell, the chief overseer on the plantation is like, okay, well, sure, Massa, I'll do any, I'll do anything, even though he's not black, but you know, um, this is my analogy. So, so he whips the slaves into shape and they're just supposed to act accordingly. Unfortunately, slaves are prone to rebellion. Mm. I'm just saying. So the other, another thing is that I would love to see if black audiences turn off the NFL and how that will affect the viewership. Because I think this is a time when black people have to coalesce and have to galvanize and say, you know what, if, if you're going to treat us like this, we're not going to watch you. Because the NFL, I would love to know how much or which proportion of their viewership is black or non-white. I would love to know. And I would love to know if that has an economic effect on the, on the NFL. But do you really think that the NFL cares if black people are watching? Because like, if you think about it, the people who are going to football games are white. Like, really? Like, if you think about, like, if you're watching a football game, do you see that many black people there? More in Oakland. <laughs> I mean, sure. Um, I don't know. I don't know the proportion. Um, I think that's a good point, actually, to be honest. Cause I'm just trying to think of, like, when I, when I watch football. You don't see you. You'll see maybe like the occasional black person with like all their white friends. It's true, actually. It's I not like it would be like if you're watching a college game. Ah, in my opinion, I don't know. Now that's an interesting observation, actually. But the this is the other thing. The NFL is using losing viewer. Oh my gosh! Okay, here we go. So the NFL is losing viewership. For many reasons. For many reasons. It's not It's not necessarily because of the kneeling. No. Ban- it's just because times are changing. Um, kids aren't growing up 
as much involved in specific sports or in football. Um, also, like, the league has been garbage the past few years. The league... Well, it's... I mean... <laughs> in terms of football quality. I mean, they don't even stream, really. No. So, they're not... They're dying institution in a way because they're relying on old technology. So they're relying on television, television rights, um, and, you know, Super Bowl and Super Bowl advertising to sustain themselves, basically. And a lot of people just aren't watching. A lot of people don't have those cable packages. That's why most of their fans are older. They skew older. Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm looking at actually, um, uh, a survey right now. It is the NFL fan audience report. It's, it's from 2015. So you can take it with a grain of salt. Um, 16 to 24, ages 16 to 24 are scoring the lowest figures of fans by any age group in the US. They're more like 16 to 24 year olds are more likely to watch the games online and less likely to tune in on television. Mm. So television itself is just losing a generation. Absolutely. The fact that the NFL is so tied to television and that's where they make their money is losing a generation. So it skews older. Now that's where I think that's where black people or black fans can make a difference. And if they are tuning out of the NFL, then the NFL has a problem. Mm -hmm. So I know I won't be watching. Ooh, and you're a pretty diehard. I am. How do you feel about this? I feel like I might turn on this in a second. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I just, you know, I stream games and I... I just don't have the need, I guess. Also, it used to be a thing between me and and somebody I was seeing at the time. And now that we're not seeing each other, I'm like, fuck it. (laughs) Yeah, I've I've had like several versions of this conversation. Um, A friend of mine, he stopped watching the NFL last year. He was like, well, it's garbage. Like the quality of the football is not good, but also like it's increasingly difficult to to deal with like all of this anthem protests because like they don't get it. Um, and, uh, and then there's also another conversation where it's just like increasingly difficult to watch the NFL, not because of the quality of the football, but because of all of the social issues and the protests and how that's just like being taken out of context and all of the domestic abuse and just how the players get away with everything and the league doesn't give a fuck yeah the league doesn't give a fuck about domestic violence but it gives a fuck about kneeling protest like kneeling anthem protests it's the hypocrisy of the league and the thing is at the end of the day nowadays people are looking at what they watch what they buy what they do and they're looking at more than just the product that they're that they're that they're selling they're looking at the overall ethics and overall values of those companies and organizations and who they want to support. And that is the, that is because the choices have increased too. Mm -hmm. 
We don't have to watch the NFL. We can watch YouTube cl- clips or I can watch Instagram stories. Like, I don't care. And that's the thing is that there's so there's so much entertainment available that nobody has to watch the little dry NFL anymore. And besides, there's always college. <laughs> so, Erica, um, I know that you don't take ride sharing all the time, but I actually took one here to your house. Um, I'm now a big proponent of Lyft because I get a lot of $5 discounts. So, like, Oh, really? I was going to ask you about Lyft because yes. Uber's getting a little too expensive. Yeah, so I always have like a $5 promo. Awesome. Um, I'm going to have to hit you up for that later. Yeah, I can give you my, my code. Yeah. Anyway, so it was announced actually a couple weeks ago that Uber will be ending forced arbitration for employees, riders, and drivers with individual claims of sexual assault and harassment. How the claim will be handled will be decided by the person making the claim. So it could be via medita- meditation, mediation, arbitration, or open court. Though I'm sure meditation is on the table if you so choose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These people need some spirituality of some kind. Um, the company will also be ending the confidentiality provision, which will allow survivors to speak publicly about the incidents. Uber has also said that it will release a transparency report on how to deal with cases of sexual assault from riders. So these forced arbitration agreements are popular in Silicon Valley, and they mean that individuals are legally prevented from taking their employers to court due to a clause in their employment contract, which is the forced arbitration agreement. What this means is that the employee and the employer bring their issues to an arbitrator who will hear both sides and then make a decision. According to the National Association of Consumer Advocates, the employee is not allowed to sue, not allowed to join a class action lawsuit, and definitely not allowed to appeal a decision. It is a system that heavily favors the employer who can settle a dispute in private without risking the bad press that comes in court. In December, Microsoft was the first major tech company to end this practice. This week, members of the U.S. Congress sent the major ride-sharing companies, Uber, Lyft, Via, Curb, and Juno, a letter expressing their concern about their sexual assault protocols. Okay, so they're ending forced arbitration. Yeah. Okay. I... Oh, Uber. Um... (laughs) So they do have a new CEO. Is it the woman that they that they were looking for? Because they were looking for a female CEO and then put to, put forth a lot of men. <laughs> Classic. Um, no, it's a man of color. Oh, good. At least that. Yeah. Um, and they they've also hired um, for the transparency report in particularly. Um, they've hired Tina Chen, who is Uber's newest in- advisor um, for the report. She's a lawyer. She used to work um, for Michelle Obama in the White House. Okay. And she's worked um, kind of in this area. She's also a member of the Legal Defense Fund for Time's Up mm. um, and was recently named a chair of the Recording Academy's Task Force for Inclusion and Diversity. And she's been fighting for women's rights for about 40 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So she seems like a badass. And so she's going to be advising Uber on this kind of, I think, how to gather the data and how to publish this report and mm-hmm. make sure that they're doing it in a responsible manner. Um, and she, 
she is um refinery 29 had an exclusive interview with her and um they they talk about her her background and how she became involved with uber and that uh she she spoke at an event um at uber about sexual harassment and sexual assault and how those are key um, issues for the travel and hospitality industry because women make up over 80% of the purchasing decisions and also the employers or Mm. the employees. Mm. Um, So it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with um, orders up at the beginning. Yeah. Um, And so they're going to be focusing on a lot of different areas in the report. Um, They want to really be accurate in how they describe the assault behaviors to make sure that they're all consistent using very similar language and collecting the data so that we can actually have real valuable worthwhile data to Mm -hmm. kind of create a baseline and then measure from there um so she says that you know that the report is going to take some time to compile because they have to kind of set these baselines there um and she she says that to expect like massive progress between year one and year three is probably unrealistic and it's more of a longitudinal kind of oh good yeah yeah okay rather than expecting like a silver bullet from you know one for the first report to the second report which i think is very responsible and reasonable um especially because this is the kind of the first report of its kind for this industry but i'm interested to find out like how the the data collection and report and like behaviors change the further Uber gets into like self-driving vehicles and that type of technology. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm looking at this and it says this piece in refinery 29 and it says like Uber Lyft is also removing its confidentiality provision, which I think you basically alluded to in the first part. And, um, (laughs) there's some shade. (laughs) So Lyft says the Me Too movement has brought to life important issues that must be addressed by society and we're committed to doing our part. Today, 48 hours prior to an impending lawsuit against their company, Uber made the good decision to adjust their policies. Ouch. Yeah, so basically Congress sent this letter to the ride-sharing companies and which prompted Lyft to announce the the change in their policy. Then, I guess, Uber followed suit. Um, it's interesting to me that Congress felt the need to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised by that. I, it's weird. I don't know. I don't know what Congress wants out of this. I really don't. <laughs> I, I just, I'm surprised. I'm questioning their motivation. But, you know, even even a broken clock can be right twice a day, right? <laughs> but I, I'm actually surprised at the number of forced arbitration agreements. I was just about to say yes. yes. Because the fact that that's standard practice in Silicon Valley is something that, like, doesn't, hasn't permeated my social media feed as as strongly as like many other topics. But we talked about this with Stormy Daniels, right? 
Yes. Um, and the rise of these non-disclosure agreements or these agreements that prevent you from saying anything negative about a company you worked for. And my thing is, you know, if that's your truth, you have an all right, if that it, you're experienced that, you have all right to say so. And, but I think the power, the relative power disparity is what's troubling. The fact that these big companies can basically bully you into shutting you up and then pay you off is exceptional and exceptionally troubling. Yeah, it's just continuing the power imbalance exactly. in harassment and assault because all you want to do when you're in the tech industry is work for Google. It's to work for Ubers, to work for Facebook. And they'll... Some like particularly if you're young, you're just going to sign whatever and not read it and not realize exactly. But it's and it's making sure that that toxic model of management is entrenched in the company. And I, I really do think so. So, you know, obviously, Travis, who used to who founded Uber, I think there comes a point where the the companies that the people like Travis built becomes if you become big enough the responsibilities change mm-hmm. and facebook is finding that out the hard way the hard way you cannot run it like the bro place you did because in comes legal issues employment issues labor issues that these dudes are not prepared to deal with. So instead of trying to create a culture that is inclusive, that is open, they don't, first of all, they don't know what that looks like for anybody who's not their friends. And <laughs> second of all, um, the, so what, what that means is there are no mechanisms to in place beyond what is considered um, required to deal with these issues and as the workforce changes and morphs and 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 grows the less likely they'll be able to deal with this so in response what they do is they have people sign non-disclosure agreements so they can't say anything so they can't be sued so they won't have bad press and I really do think that it's a form of economic intimidation Mm. and we really have to start talking about this yeah and it goes back to kind of what you were saying is that like you know we have to think about progressive policies you know maybe unions aren't always the answer or right and i'm not putting that forward sure yeah I'm not saying that unions are the be all and end all because they have their own issues. To be honest, they should be called out too. But anyway, I digress. Go on. Um, it's really interesting. So I'm going to take what I said earlier in that previous conversation. But like these are the innovators. You know, these people are on the cutting edge of technology, of ideas, and all of these things. But their policies are entirely regressive. It's because they're regressive in the area of humans. <laughs> It's, yeah, I, I, like, yeah. I'm not even trying yeah. to make a joke. No, no. Is that because I'm just like, oh yeah, AI. Yes, we have robots. Right, right. Okay, so exactly this the driverless cars. These are the people cars. who don't understand mm. or have 
who have a maybe difficult time understanding human interactions yeah. in a normal sort of yeah. everyday context. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And anything and what they know about humans is basically reflected by people like themselves. Right. So I watched um, The Circle the other night. What's The Circle? So it's based on a book. Okay. Um, is it a movie, first of all? It's a movie. I watched it on Netflix. Okay. And it is based on a Dave Dave Eggers book, which and I loved the book. And I heard the movie was awful, but I was like, you know what? I, I, I really like the book. I'm just going to watch this okay. movie. The movie was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Well, that's a plus. Um, but basically, like, Emma Watson's character goes... Oh, Emma Watson's in it. Okay. Yeah, and Tom Hanks. Uh, that's uh, an odd pairing, but mm-hmm. anyway. Um, so basically, she works at this big company, internet company, like a Google-Facebook hybrid, and they talk about transparency, and they she wears, like, a camera all the time. So, like, it's kind of one talking about openness and transparency but also is kind of talking about how our behavior changes once we know we're on a camera and they talk about like that how we know when we're being watched we act differently than we would otherwise and uh it takes away that human element yeah it does and the thing about it like I think in Silicon Valley, there is a belief that machines are just better than humans. And they're, and it's based on, um, they're all technocrats, basically. And I personally, I, per, I personally think that, that humanity is something that cannot be replicated. Mm-hmm. I think that humans have certain things in their core um, whether it's whether it's measurable or not, that makes us the supreme sort of beings yeah. on earth. Okay, so how the, do you code empathy? Right. How do you code empathy? You can't. You can't. It's also situational. Yeah. And humans are at times erratic, at times unpredictable. Um, so I think the driverless cars debate what I see on my Facebook when I when I pose this question is that, well, the driverless cars can can negate human error. Mm, sure. If it's if the parameters are cons- are consistent or consistently changing. Right. Mm-hmm. So if those for example, for the woman who got killed, humans in in that driverless car that ran over the woman or hit the woman who got killed in Arizona, I think it was, um, a few weeks back. I think what what technology cannot predict is humans being unpredictable. And um, I also think that this idea that we're marching towards this machine-based labor force or machine-based um, living is flawed. It's flawed. So what? Machines are going to be our friends. They're going to give us support and compassion. Can you really code compassion? You don't have to if you don't regard it as something that's important. But it is. And it is, especially in managing people, if you're talking about structures. And it that's why people who are really good technically make shitty managers usually. 
sorry, but they do. And the reason, like, to me, I always used to hear, I don't like humans. I'm like, really? No human at all? <laughs> like, there's not one person? Maybe the problem is you. Like, I never understood that. I can say, I can certainly say, I'm not really into peopling today. I just want to be by myself. But I can't say I don't like human beings. Right. Like, what the fuck is that? And I just, I just, I never understood that. Anyway, I think I'm veering off here. The point being that when it comes to these, especially these tech companies who say they're innovative, they're really, really, you're right. They're really, really regressive when it comes to actually dealing with people. So our last topic is uh, kind of going back to something we talked about a few weeks ago when we discussed how Spotify was starting to punish artists involved um, in, well, basically bad behavior, mm-hmm. promoting hate in, well, being hateful generally and being shitty humans mm-hmm. um, and not including their music um, in playlists and therefore making their music a bit harder to find. And this included artists like R. Kelly and Tentacion who I have no idea who that is. And it took me a very long time to figure out how to say his name. Um, But now Spotify is starting to cave to internal and external pressure, particularly after Spotify's head of artist relations, Troy Carter threatened to quit. However, external pressure has not, has been coming from many directions, including from one of hip hop's faves, Kendrick Lamar, whose reps have been putting pressure on Carter going as far to say that Lamar will pull his music from the platform if the policy isn't changed. <laughs> this is such a bad look. This is y'all's man. Like, because I, this is why I just pay attention to the music, music. fans, hip hop fans view Kendrick Lamar as kind of the adult in the room. Mm-hmm. He is the moral compass. He is being an activist through his music. He just won the Pulitzer Prize. It used to be Nas, but we know what happened there. Well, just saying. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a great example of why you shouldn't like stand for artists. They're problematic. I mean, all our faves are problematic. We say that all the time. Yeah. Don't have a fave. Don't look up to anyone and you won't be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you can admire people for things they stand for. That's fine. This is the same Kendrick Lamar that um, that checked a white fan over the N-word at one of his concerts recently, who basically said, oh, we shouldn't be using that, da-da-da-da-da. Okay, that's, that's another discussion in itself. But where is that outrage for domestic violence? Hmm? Why is it? that and this this is particular to black men you can at me if you want to i like i don't give a shit but black men especially can be uh can fight for civil rights and be misogynist at the same time and i just want to put that out there and so which is why black women are usually the arbitrators or arbiters of of these kinds of issues is because they don't roll for us at times. Mm. At me if you want to. Um, they really don't. They still perpetuate that patriarchy and that misogyny 
that we see in the greater public. And to me, that's what Kendrick Lamar is doing. Now, will I stop listening to Kendrick Lamar? No, but I take every I take every artist with a grain of salt. If they're starting to say certain things that I like, I'll I'll retweet. Yay. Yeah. But I know that something's coming down the pipe. Yeah. Because privilege, like the the privilege of having a platform, which don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's not well earned. What I'm saying is a platform or having that power can make people do strange things. Um, after Spotify, and this is the problem, this is another issue. Spotify being the arbiter of, of, of civil rights or rights-based or progressive issues, the corporate overseeing those issues is always a problem. And it's a problem because their main goal is the bottom line. So if they start seeing that their bottom line is affected too much, they're going to pull back. They can't be trusted. Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that Kendrick is not worth canceling at the moment, but he needs to be he needs to be put on notice. Yeah, he does. He really does. Um, I don't. Um, I don't blame Spotify for the, no. They're in an awkward position. They're in a weird, and, awkward position. And they a, have shareholders too. And they didn't they just go public. Yeah, they made this mess themselves. Not that it's a mess yet, mm-hmm. but it has a potential to spiral out of control. It does. And the fact that they have this policy, while is good on paper, who's going to decide which artists are included and which aren't? Well, and then what happens if they walk back their policy? Are people going to leave the platform? Like, listeners, are they going to leave the platform? Are they going to cancel their premium subscription? Right. Because that's what they care about. Yeah. At the end of the day, they're just making these moves to solidify um uh um, get social capital yes oh thank you thank you that is perfect social capital yeah i like this to get social capital yeah because social capital adds a premium to the brand yep they're woke wow i think i like sometimes you just say things aaron and i'm just like Blah, 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 blah. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh. Okay. There you go. <laughs> On that note, I think I'm done. <laughs> now we're moving on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring a story to share with the others. We're going to talk about it and then we're going to tell you why we picked it. Erica, you want to go first? Oh, I'm going. For- okay. So <laughs> the Native Women's Association of Canada is in some deep shit. Oh. Um, so let me just give you a summary. The Native Women's Association of Canada is facing a high rate of turnover, while its board of directors have received several complaints in the past 17 months over what former employees say is a toxic work environment. They've received at least five letters raising concerns about the current internal state of the organization. One letter sent to the board in January of 2017, um, signed by two senior managers within the organization at the time, alleged mismanagement of funds through the use of specific project dollars 
to create unrelated positions within the organization. The letter also alleges dysfunctional dynamics that create favoritism and cliqueishness inside the organization. The intensifying, quote, the intensifying toxicity has created a culture of fear and is directly affecting staff's work performance, morale, and contributing to high stress. NWAC hired an outside investigator to probe these allegations. The investigation determined there was no contravention of the organization's hiring and harassment policies. Yet employees were asked to sign indemnity agreements that legally prevented them from publicly criticizing the organization. Amy Ede, a former NWAC, now NWAC, Director of Communications, said she signed an indemnity agreement. I can't speak negatively about NWAC upon departure. I signed an agreement saying I had not faced any discrimination as an employee. The Ontario Native Women's Association sent a former letter to NWAC last week announcing it would be withdrawing from the organization and would no longer have a representative on its board. They said the current NWAC leadership is no longer listening or taking meaningful financial or policy direction from its board members. Yeah, that's a clusterfuck, eh? Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So let me be a hundred and say that the person who um, basically who has become the face of this issue, um, we had been in contact a few weeks ago and she told me when she was fired and um, this is not Amy Eat I'm talking about, but um, she was fired and uh, she basically told me what a dysfunctional place this was. And then this kind of came up on CBC and so I talked to her before we, ta- we recorded the podcast. And so I asked her about these indemnity agreements. And what she said was that she herself, after she was fired, uh, was brought into a boardroom with the executive director and uh, two of her underlings and basically told to sign the agreement or else she wouldn't get um, a specific amount of um, funding due to her firing. So it included the the money that she was offered included um, her severance plus a top up. Hmm. And so the reason that I thought this was an important Um, issue is because we've been talking about NDAs we talked about it earlier in the podcast this on in this week in feminism and the use of these agreements are used to silence those same people from marginalized groups that these orgs purport to help and also puts them in a position to have to choose between getting money that they need to just live while finding another job and they're backed into a financial corner. Um, and these people are, so that's further, it's solidifying that imbalance of power. Huh. 
Um, and this is a nonprofit org that takes money from the government. So this is taxpayer money. And what I don't understand is why there's no accountability for an executive director who has created such a toxic work environment and why they're un- not under scrutiny for the way they spend that money. Yeah, the uh, the grants and contributions programs of the federal government are flawed and they don't they just basically ask the organizations to, you know, submit a proposal for whatever grant or contribution and then they're awarded accordingly. They don't take into account any sort of internal politics um and I suppose that's just because they want to give everyone an equal shot. I use air quotes around equal because mm-hmm more established organizations have the capacity to write better that's right um uh, proposals than smaller ones so you're not really leveling the playing field in any sort of meaningful way mm-hmm. um but i'm i'm actually very surprised at these indemnity agreements mm-hmm. because this doesn't seem like the type of practice that would happen at other nonprofits i know i i could be very wrong because mm-hmm. i i don't operate in those types of circles so Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know but uh it so how would we fix this problem like would we try to just add in like greater oversight into like how grants and contributions are given out by the federal government like how what sort of burden would that create on the bureaucracy or well i don't want to i don't think that the the answer is introducing an extra layer of reporting that benefits larger, more established organizations who have basically worked within, who better work within a system and work work within their uh, framework and have more experienced people to do that because they can pay more. I don't think that's the answer. Um, I really would like to know where they got the money to pay lawyers to set up this indemnity indemnity agreement and yeah. whether or not those lawyers were paid through by funding received from a grant and con- or contribution. It it depends on the grant and what the, the terms and conditions of right. those are. Right. So that troubles me. Um, but what really troubles me is that what we have is... Um, an organization that purports to use marginalized people to enforce their own level of white supremacy. That bothers me. And because I, I can guarantee that a lot of these people, what she was telling me, actually, the person who I spoke to, was that um, even people of color are used to enforce this level of harassment. And this level of toxicity further say proving that you can be a person of color and still work in within that white supremacist framework. We see this all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's even with the NFL protests, you know, there are people of color, black people who work as trainers, who are coaches, who work in the back offices who now have to quote unquote support this um obligate or this new rule where our players have to stand yeah and whether or not they personally agree with it um but they still have to uphold that white supremacy yeah so it happens all the time yeah but i I think it's more surprising when we when we see it happen 
from organizations who are actually supposed to be helping out these marginalized populations. Exactly. And what level of credibility do they have right now? I would say none. Because if the Ontario Native Women's Association is already pulling out, they're no longer a national organization. Mm -hmm. They no longer can meet the needs of those organizations, of, of the people that they say that they're helping. And to be honest, I would say that some heads need to roll in this one. And um, Carolyn Bennett, um, Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs, this is under her watch. Now, I know that you cannot be responsible for um, the way that... um, or every organization, if you're a minister. I get that. I'm not saying that she is the problem. What I'm saying is that now she really needs to come out and say something and clean up this mess because this this is that's what leadership is about. She's still, it's still within her mandate. And so it just adds that extra sort of layer of why the establishment cannot be trusted and especially in an establishment that talks so big and broad about about indigenous rights and then bloop nothing that's why i think this is important <laughs> so my rent and receipts this week is a story from quartz um, that talks about how the french national embassy has passed a bill to fight sexual violence and harassment It's been in the works since last year following the Harvey Weinstein reports, um, who was charged and arraigned this week. We will. Fucking right. Um, The bill is currently with the Senate, and if it's passed, would impose on-the-spot fines ranging from 90 euros to 750 euros, so roughly 105 US dollars to $877 for persistent catcalling and aggressively lecherous street harassment which the National Assembly considers to be, quote, following a woman through several blocks or asking for her phone number 15 straight times. But that is according to France's junior minister for gender equality, Marlene Schiappa. Um, And the punishments would apply to all harassers regardless of their sex. So critics claim that it's an attempt to end French romance. President Emmanuel Macron, however, says that the bill is meant to ensure that, quote, Women are not afraid to be outside. Responding to the claim that catcalling legislation will kill the culture of the French lover, uh, the junior minister for gender equality, Schiappa, said that the bill intends to do quite the opposite. Quote, we want to preserve seduction, chivalry, and l'amour à la française by saying what is key is consent. Between consenting adults, everything is allowed. We can seduce talk but if someone says no it's no and it's final so this struck me as very very well i'm of two minds so Mm -hmm. i i like the the idea of the legislation in that making street harassment illegal is always a good thing because women deserve to feel safe in all spaces um but at the same time you can't like the bill seems to make catcalling problematic and illegal, but the minister 
doesn't say that catcalling is illegal or would be illegal and that basically she's talking about it's harassment. And those are very different things. And I think that we need to understand that they're different things. Like, like they are, they both are under on the spectrum of harassment for sure. But catcalling and yelling at someone as I walk down the street is very different than following someone and pestering them. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you criminalize someone yelling at you on the street is my question. And I don't understand how this would occur in practice and how an quote on the spot fine would happen. Like that, the whole rollout and process behind it just, are they going to have police on every corner? Are we going to, is France going to be a police state now? And also, can we please, please get rid of this idea of the French lover and that the French are so romantic and of course we want to be like talking about romance and courting and all of these dumb things that people are using as a way to excuse bad behavior. (sighs) Okay. So... I have an issue with I've I've so many minds of this. Okay. So I do think cat calling is on the spectrum. Sure. Following someone is actually stalking. Yes. Aren't there stalking laws? I, I mean I I presume so, but I think they just mean like not like following them all the time. It's just like as you're, you're walking down the street and like chasing after them. Um, you know how like in there's in movies you yeah. see a girl walking down the street and like it always happens in Europe and there's always a guy like chasing her down. Oh my love, you are so beautiful! Like it's the Pepe Le Pew yeah. kind of yeah. idea that, of not what like romance the is. Yeah. Okay, so that poor cat. Um, He's a skunk. A skunk. <laughs> wasn't the other one a cat? Wasn't the the girl a cat though? I believe so. Yes. Okay, yeah. So, um, speaking of French, Pepe Le Pew. Okay. Um, we in general have this romanticized notion about the French in general and French lovers and French romance and, and Europeans in general, and to be Europeans honest. Europeans in general, cause I won't leave out the Italians out of that. And a lot of them, like a lot of these are just based on brutishness. And I just like, <laughs> I don't find it fun. It's not. It's 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 humiliating actually. Yeah. I'm not sure what the answer is because I don't think that the government can legislate this. No. I don't think that they're going to be able and it's just going to it, it's just going to bring in more animosity towards the state. Mm-hmm. I really do think that Bystander intervention is more effective in these I cases. I would 100% agree. I think that we need to empower ourselves and empower others and individuals to call this shit out. Because I'm here for public shame in, pers- in certain circumstances. 
that's how attitudes change really Mm -hmm. it's because the community around you is like this is not acceptable yeah and not because government says that this is not acceptable we're putting in legislation well yeah and it goes back to stories that i've shared before about friends who have been with their groups of friends and someone said like oh don't be such a pussy yeah they're like actually that's not appropriate to say well didn't you just start out this episode by talking about how you're a feminist killjoy yeah well there you go I'm that bitch too. Totally. And so I'm the person who, if I yeah. see a guy harassing a girl on a street and just like trying to like talk to her and she like is very clearly uncomfortable, I'm going to stand there and wait and see what happens before I can know like whether or not I need to intervene or if she's okay. Yeah. And I know we talked about this in an earlier episode about, you know, when is when is the right time? And so you're just going to have to play that by ear. Mm-hmm. You're just going to have to trust your gut on that one. And I can I pretty sure that any woman who has been through any sort of harassment knows what that look is. You know, that look, that look where you're just trying to appease him enough so that he goes away. But you're really scared. Mm-hmm. We all know that look. And maybe men don't know that look, but hell, men can be bystander. Like, in fact, unfortunately, I think men carry more weight in yes. that some t- because men only yep. listen to other men. Yep. When when they're like, yo, that shit is rank. Yeah. You want to be a good ally? Start there. And if there's anybody out there who's teaching any sort of courses or classes in terms of bystander intervention when it's right when it's not right yada 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 i would say even accidentally like being a bystander is better than not but if there anybody like who has those classes like let us know it like i would like to know if that's even actually being done so thanks for listening and uh don't forget to follow us on social media you can find us on Twitter at Bad and Bitchy, on Instagram at Bad and Bitchy Pod, on Facebook slash Bad and B Podcast. And don't forget to email us, send us your questions for our Dear Bitches column, advice column, and uh, forward any articles you think that we might be interested in. Bad and B Pod at gmail.com. Bye. 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 Bye.